The reading's taken from the book of Acts, chapter 9, and it begins at verse 20. At once, Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word and we ask this evening that you would now um, open our hearts and our minds to understand, help us to dig deep and to receive um, nourishing food from your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start this evening with the last verse of our passage and go backwards, if that's all right. Here it goes. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Peace. Don't we long for peace? I don't think there's probably ever been any civilization that hasn't put the search for peace as as one of the highest criteria. Different contexts, of course, have seen peace in different ways. For many, many centuries, peace was about outside, external peace in a very conflictual context. You only have to open the pages of the the Old Testament to discover some sort of a a reflection of that uh, fairly tribal world where um, uh, wars and conflicts with very physical enemies were an everyday thing. And longing for peace was actually a very material thing. In our day, talking about peace tends to resonate with inner peace, doesn't it? And people longing for some sort of inner uh, sense of satisfaction and, uh, and, and contentment. Um, although, as we were reminded in our prayers, 
um, nowadays, praying for peace isn't just about peace in our hearts. It, we're very, very conscious of our socioeconomic context, of our geopolitical context, of the complicated and interconnected world that we live in, which so lacks peace. Peace is so fundamental, isn't it, to our way of living. And it was fundamental for the early church. And I love this little verse that comes at the end of our passage, which simply says, then the church enjoyed a time of peace. Boy, did they need it. Because if you think back um, over the past few weeks where we've been looking through the book of Acts and following the story of the early church, you'll uh, realize with me that in those first nine chapters, because we're in chapter nine today, the first nine chapters which span a period of about three years are very, very full on. There's lots and lots of things happening. Continually they're going up and down, they're being whirled around. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride. They start with the ascension and then straight away they're into Pentecost. An extraordinary explosion of life and they go from 120 to 3,120 people in the space of one sermon. And then suddenly everything's thrown up as they, have to, as they start preaching in the temples and, and then it starts bringing responses, positive and negative. And then with that huge uh, exponential growth. They have problems of organization, internal organization. And as we've seen, uh, the, the hand of judgment comes on them and calls them to live in truth. And then that, that, that moment where, where, where they, having, having discerned people at tables and, and, and worked out whose ministry is, suddenly one of them ends up as an evangelist and then becomes the first martyr. And following that, in chapter 8, we're told that that actually causes widespread persecution on this early church. And they're scattered. They're no longer even physically in the same area. They're scattered all the way around Jerusalem. And then suddenly, and there we are in chapter 9, the very person that's been persecuting them says that he's become a Christian. I mean, can you imagine? It's just like a real roller coaster ride, isn't it, for these guys? Every time they think that they've just about got things organized, just about got their plan in place, God suddenly turns everything on its head and something else happens. They must have been exhausted. I mean, frankly, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. What a wonderful thing that then suddenly, at the end of chapter 9, or at the end of this passage, it just says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace. A time of peace. At last. A moment where they can breathe. Where they can take stock. A sort of retreat time where they can examine what on earth they've been going through. Think. Analyze. Reflect. A time where they can actually just regain strength. Actually, the immediate preceding time has been a real topsy-turvy time. We talked about Saul suddenly becoming a Christian. Listen to how one commentator, John Stott, says it. He says this, the story of Saul's conversion begins with him leaving Jerusalem with an official mandate from the high priest to arrest fugitive Christians and ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. What a turnaround. And now at last, we've got that verse which says they are at rest. This is how I'm going to translate it. 
literally from the Greek. Therefore, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Isn't that nice? Isn't that wonderful? God gave peace. And it was a universal peace given to all the churches. I love the fact that in this verse, I don't know if you noticed it, but in this verse it doesn't say the churches. It says the church. Now, now you, you understand the context, yeah? They've been thrown out through persecution. And wherever they've gone, the text in uh, Acts 8 verse 4 tells us that they preached the gospel. So we've got a church planting environment, okay? Wherever they're going, they're planting little communities. So all over around Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria, a little bit to the north and even as far as Galilee, there are these little groups of communities. Now it would be very easy, therefore, for Luke to say, and the churches enjoyed a time of peace, but he doesn't. He says the church. Isn't that lovely? Doesn't that say something really strong about the gospel? Even though there's no organization, it's really chaotic. They can't even keep up with what God's doing. They don't even have internet and, and immediate news. It would be so, in, so easy for them all to go their different ways and, and think of themselves as completely disconnected units. They don't. They know that they are part of one thing, God's thing. And so it says the church had a time of peace. What a good thing when God blesses us and focuses us again on what unites us. And this time of peace here is a time of blessing. It's received as a gift by the church. It has to be a gift because they didn't earn it. It was a gift, a little bit like in Psalm 23. You remember, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me down to lie in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. It's like a, an open space. There's another psalm that talks about he has placed me in an open space. What a blessing when God gives that to his church. A space where we can just step back and wonder about how good God is, reminding us of his faithfulness. We could call this, and there are three different ways that we're going to look at peace tonight, we could call this circumstantial peace. It's where the circumstances fit together and where we are blessed. It's peace that comes from God and it's a, it's a gift. And here it allows growth. But here's the thing. Circumstantial peace is always a gift, never a right. Nowhere in Scripture does it promise that we will always have circumstantial peace. Psalm 23 continues, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no ill. Because you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. That is not circumstantial peace. Peace when our situation falls into place is an amazing blessing that God gives out of generosity, but we can't guarantee it will happen. And actually, when we look at the book of Acts, we discover that it is always for the church a subtle but real temptation 
to actually rely on circumstances and assume we have a right for things to go well. And it becomes an objective for us. In the book of Acts, circumstantial peace is not the main objective of the church. It's a blessing that comes in addition. The main objective of the church is faithfulness to God's mission. And the main drive in the book of Acts to growth and mission of the church is not peace, it's persecution. Now we fall into the trap of a second type of peace therefore, not circumstantial peace, but I'm going to call this comfortable peace. The church and the members of the church that we are very quickly fall into the trap of imagining that peace is our ultimate goal for ourselves. Now listen, chapter 9 is about Saul's conversion and about the repercussions that happen after that. And if you look with me at chapter 9, it is not very peaceful. God has worked in an extraordinary way to bring Saul, the chief persecutor, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine a more amazing miracle? We have to imagine that the early church were faithful to Jesus' words, pray for your persecutors, yeah? So we've got to imagine that actually, I don't know how much faith they had, don't know that they really imagined that this would happen, but they still were praying for Saul and company, for those who were persecuting them, because they knew Jesus had said they had to do it. But we can't imagine that they had a huge amount of faith because they didn't believe when it happened that it had happened. They didn't believe it was true. It took Barnabas, remember? to bring him, Saul, to the church and say, no, it's okay, this is the real deal. But they were praying for it. Now, when they heard it and they realized this is the real deal, can you imagine any greater moment of celebration? I mean, goodness me, what an, a miracle. God has brought a persecutor to faith. What an amazing sign of his kingdom. What an extraordinary way of, of seeing the, the reality of the gospel. And yet, does it bring peace to them? Actually, no, not at all. It doesn't bring peace at all. Saul, now converted in Damascus, starts talking about his new faith. And what does it do? It provokes. It provokes anger. It provokes reaction amongst the Jews. And so much so that he is at risk of his life and they have a plot to kill him. And it says that the church in Damascus, the brothers and sisters in Damascus, in order to protect him and save him, they put him in a basket and they let him out through a window in the wall of the city and they free him that way. I mean, can you think of anything slightly more sort of like weird than that? We're going from an amazing moment of rejoicing at God's power to suddenly slipping out through a window in a basket because people want to kill Saul. And then Saul goes to Jerusalem and the same thing happens. First of all, they don't believe him. And then when they do believe him, he, get, he starts preaching. And he starts speaking and, and suddenly, instead of it bringing peace, it brings persecution. It brings the opposite. Is it because Paul's being unfaithful, Saul's being unfaithful? No. Maybe he's being a little unwise. Maybe he's a little difficult. But actually, the text tells us he's just preaching Jesus. And the result is not peace, but, but opposition. So much so that the Grecian Jews there also hatch a plan in order to put him to death. They just cannot stand it. And the text tells us the brothers in Jerusalem then take him to Caesarea, which was the port 
for his own protection, no doubt, and then they send him off back home to Tarsus. It's not a very peaceful story, is it? I mean, frankly. It's a bit like Jason Bourne, you're saying. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure Paul would have thought that that was... Uh... But here's the point, okay? The, the, the Jerusalem church have to do something, don't they? Because just like the Damascan church, uh, Saul being there is a real problem. It's provoking. It's provoking. Here's the high-profile convert, and it's not peaceful to be around him. His preaching is polarizing opinion and generating opposition. What are they going to do? Well, they send him home. Why do they do that? Well, if we're generous with them, it's because they want to protect him for his own protection so he doesn't get put to death. But if we're slightly less generous, and the text certainly implies this, I think it was also so they could have a little bit of peace. Yeah? Because it says very clearly here, it says, when the brothers learned of it, they took him down to Caesarea and, went to, and sent him off to Tarsus. Then at last, the church enjoyed a time of peace. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Why do they enjoy a time of peace? Because they got rid of the troublemaker. They got rid of him. Saul was too hot to handle. He was too difficult for the church. Now, I just, I just think that there's actually, there's actually something serious here, which is that um, there are times when seeking peace is the easy option and not necessarily the right type of peace to seek. Comfortable peace. Comfortable peace where we uh, try and smooth over differences put them under the carpet, comfortable peace where we want to distance ourselves from people who are not like us is not necessarily the godly thing to do. Saul arrived in the church and he was too hot to handle. Fortunately, there was a Barnabas to create that link, but it still, the church couldn't handle him. And it was actually very convenient for them to get rid of him and send him back home. And then they were at peace. There are times when seeking peace and comfortable peace is not the right thing to do. A bit like in the Old Testament where Jeremiah said uh, of some of the false prophets, he said, they dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Now, there's an interesting thing about Saul here. Okay, he's probably lacking in uh, subtlety, <laughs> like a lot of young Christians. But he is actually just doing the work of an evangelist. And it is the, um, it is the nature of an evangelist to bring people to a point of crisis decision. Are you for or against Christ? And for diplomatic people, people who love to pastor and be gentle, being around evangelists is a jolly uncomfortable thing. It's not very peaceful being around an evangelist because an evangelist provokes. An evangelist will challenge people. An evangelist will challenge them to change. And often we as church don't like new people coming in who aren't like us because they, un, they dislodge us and we're looking for comfortable peace. We get used to doing things in a certain way. And somebody who comes off the streets, imagine Saul came in tonight. He'd probably actually be rather an uncomfortable person to be with. He'd get us all out there straight away preaching. And, and we might actually find that a little difficult to handle. 
like the church in Jerusalem. And I'm not pointing fingers because I think we're all in this together. And I'm just trying to unpack this, this, this complicated notion. You understand that, yeah? But there is a piece that can anesthetize the church, causing it to slumber instead of watch, to sleep instead of pray. Let me say that again. There is a piece that can anesthetize the church, causing it to slumber instead of watch and to sleep instead of pray. Where we call bad good just to make things easy. Listen to John Calvin. He wrote a commentary on the book of Acts and when he wrote it, it was in 1560, it was the beginning of the wars of religion. Now Calvin did not want wars around faith but he found that proclaiming the gospel provoked opposition. And this is what he says about this verse. He said, the blessing of the churches at peace is no ordinary blessing and it is not to be despised. But Luke adds another, other things which are more valuable still. That the churches were being edified, built up. That they were walking in the fear of the Lord and that they were filled with the comfort of the Spirit. For he says, as we are accustomed in peacetime to abandon ourselves to a riot of luxury, the churches are for the most part more blessed in the midst of the tumults of war than if they are enjoying the quietest and most pleasant time they could desire. Therefore, let us learn not to abuse external peace by being involved in pleasures and idleness but the more rest that is given to us by our enemies to make up our minds to make diligent progress in piety when we get the chance. And so, both in peace and in war, let us always thrive with eagerness towards the one who supervises our course. There is actually a type of peace which is a false peace. It's a comfortable peace. It's seeking our own well-being first. I just want to be at peace. Just give me a bit of peace. Don't disturb me. Now, Saul knew that. In fact, when he became Paul and he wrote to the churches, he often talked about peace. And at one point in Romans 12, verse 18, he says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But he does say, as far as it depends on you. And we understand from the context that that means that there are certain things that we have to say as Christians which aren't necessarily going to be received in a peaceful way. Paul said that preaching the cross of Christ is folly for some people. It's not wisdom. It's a stumbling block. Conversion to Christ is deeply subversive. And it's seen as betrayal by many people and that's why people reacted to Saul. Because he, he was their leader. And suddenly he turned around. True Holy Spirit change profoundly challenges the spiritual status quo. There is, we know, a spiritual battle. And kingdom living, gospel proclamation, Holy Spirit manifestations of power cause opposition. Spiritually, they provoke. Now, that is what was happening with Saul. He knew that. He wasn't seeking opposition. But he knew that by being faithful to Jesus, 
there would be provocation. Jesus knew that. In one of the most sort of enigmatic sayings of Jesus, Matthew 10, he says this, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we need to understand that rightly. But there is a sense in which the gospel challenges. It makes us uncomfortable. And it's not a comfortable peace that it brings. Jesus knows that. Jesus says and anticipates that the gospel proclaimed will be resisted when he says in Matthew, 12, uh, Matthew 5 in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 and 12, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. God's truth provokes evil and antagonizes it. But the incredible thing is that that, um, that saying of Jesus in the Beatitudes comes immediately after another saying just before, in Matthew 5, 9, the very verse before, Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So here's our third type of peace. We've had circumstantial peace, which is a blessing from God, but not a right. We've had comfortable peace, which is a temptation to be resisted. But here's a third type of peace that, that Jesus talks about. He was the prince of peace. And I'd like to call that kingdom peace. It's a totally different peace. This goes beyond circumstances and it doesn't always make us comfortable. But it is real and it is grounded and nothing can remove it. It is a peace that is deeply rooted in scripture. Kingdom peace. Over 250 times in the Old Testament, that beautiful word shalom is mentioned. It's mentioned as a sort of pro prolongation, extension of God's own character. Shalom, it means personal and social well-being. It means fulfillment and completion. Which is why incidentally in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, says be perfect as, as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And we have trouble understanding what he means, but he's, he's talking about shalom. Because shalom is about perfection, completeness. Be in peace, be at peace as God is at peace. Be whole. It's about connectedness. It's about being rooted. It's about truth. It's about justice. There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 85, that says this, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. And here's what it looks like. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. That's a beautiful picture of God's kingdom peace. And we know that in Hebrew, as in Greek, the word righteousness also means justice. Okay? 
So peace, God's peace, his kingdom peace is also about justice. And we know that sometimes acting for justice provokes opposition. But kingdom peace is about things becoming aligned with God's world. About the kingdom coming. About ultimate things falling into place. It's not just about circumstances. It's not about comfort. It's about God's will being done. It's about things being righted. About justice coming. Rolling like a river, as the um, Old Testament prophets said. And Saul understood that this deeper kingdom peace comes from the Prince of Peace. Which is why when he was converted, from the moment that he has that encounter with Jesus Christ, he always talks about Jesus. And he always talks about Jesus using his title, King Jesus. Because it's kingdom peace. King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so in Damascus, in our passage, he talks about Jesus Christ. In Jerusalem, he talks about Jesus Christ. When he's sent back home to Tarsus, we don't imagine him sitting by the fireplace with his mum. He's going around evangelizing and he's talking about Jesus Christ. Everywhere he goes, Paul, it's Paul's passion is to bring kingdom peace, reconciling, making people one with God. That's what comes all through his letters. Later on when he's writing to one of his churches in Rome, he says this, Romans 5 verse 1, a majestic verse to remember by heart. Therefore, since we have been justified, that's the righteous word, yeah? Through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this, Ephesians 2 verse 14, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's made them one. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Christ came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Kingdom. Peace. Doesn't our world need that? I mean, not just circumstantial peace, not just comfort peace, but kingdom peace that brings deep, deep change. Reconciling irreconcilables, persecutor and victim, one church. And from the start, that is Saul's message. And if preaching that gospel of peace provokes opposition, if it means that Saul has to jump into a basket and be let down out of the back window in order to escape, then so be it. Because the kingdom peace of God in Christ Jesus is always there with him to strengthen him, to encourage him, just as it did the churches. And that, I think, is one of the secrets of the early church. They had understood kingdom peace. Much later, Paul, about 25 years later, Paul finds himself in prison. And he writes to a whole host of churches. He, wrote, he writes the churches in Colossae. He writes the churches in Ephesus. He writes the churches in Philippi. And in that particular letter, Paul says this, 
I have learned, Philippians 4 verse 12, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And he says this in the same letter, so you do not be anxious about anything, but in everything present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which goes beyond all circumstances, which doesn't depend on people, doesn't depend on success, doesn't depend on your job, it doesn't depend on your health, it doesn't depend on your well-being, it doesn't depend on your state of mind, it doesn't depend on your comfort, it doesn't depend on those things, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 7. Paul had understood that peace is about seeking the kingdom. And so when Jesus calls his followers to be peacemakers, he doesn't call us just to come and put a plaster on complicated situations. He comes and calls us to be alongside people, to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek for justice, to bring God's kingdom, to, to long for reconciliation, to work for change, and to do it knowing that whatever happens, God is there bringing his kingdom about, and his kingdom is defined by peace. Shalom. It always has been, and it doesn't depend on circumstances. So let's go back to the end of our passage where we began. Verse 31. Therefore, the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and, um, and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. It had peace. Yes, yeah, sure, okay, it was circumstantial peace. Praise God. Sure, it was probably also comfortable peace because they'd got rid of the difficult person. <laughs> but it was most of all kingdom peace. And that 